by the way, with all praise to the Lord, thank you for bringing items for the Cafe of Life. Been a lot of brown bags carried in this week. So thank you for bringing those. They'll be uh, carried over in the morning. And please, if you forgot or think that you might want to do it later, anytime anything shows up here that's for the Cafe of Life, we'll make sure that it gets there. So don't feel like you've missed a window or you've missed out. But thank all of you who have participated in this uh, brown bag drive. And so in Luke, backing up from where you were last week to Luke chapter 7. I just thought that was really cool. The doctor has good news. And preaching from Luke the physician, there was a doctor standing here. Fox and friends notwithstanding. That's great. Uh, Nice to see Greg turning different shades of red as John was up here talking to him about him. Luke chapter 7. We're looking at verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, I say to them, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So may the Lord bless this reading of his word. May his name evermore be praised. Amen. And so it's a question of authority. Oftentimes the question has to be asked, who is in charge around here? When I was in a church office several years ago on a Saturday morning, I got a phone call of all things from a telemarketer that day who apparently was working with the local phone company. And as they would often ask such questions, I'd like to speak to the person in charge of your telecommunications. I said, ma'am, this is a church. We don't have anybody in charge of anything around here. (laughs) And she just died laughing. She said, that's the most honest response I've ever heard to any question I've ever asked. Come to find out she was a Christian. We had a wonderful five-minute conversation that had absolutely nothing to do with telecommunications. But often that can be the case, isn't it, when you ask who's in charge and you can't really find anybody. Well, for the believer, we always know that the Lord Jesus is the Lord. After all, the gospel would have us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And Lord implies that he is in charge. He is the one in authority. And we see that demonstrated here in this passage, interestingly enough. Now, Jesus has proclaimed to those who listen his wonderful sermon on the plain, as it is known in Luke. Probably a different sermon 
given at a different time than the one recorded in Matthew beginning in chapter 5, which we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. But a lot of the same material, a lot of the same content, yet different. And so Jesus had finished all his sayings. Note that the ministry of the Lord Jesus was very intentional. He said what he intended to say at any given time. He went where he intended to go at any given time. He always had a purpose in what he undertook. And, of course, his broader ministry was the same way. He came into the world to redeem sinners. Jesus accomplishes what he sets out to do. We see that he's in the area of Capernaum, which is important. Next to Jerusalem, it is the most important uh, populous location that Jesus ministered in, village though it was. It was a base of operations for him, indeed for most of his ministry. He taught and performed many miracles there, as we see in the gospel accounts. We also know that uh, Simon Peter, Andrew, and Matthew, otherwise known as Levi, were from that locale. Although Peter and Andrew may have come from Bethesda originally, or I'm sorry, Bethsaida, but even so, an important location. It was, we know from the record, a major trade route, at least was on it. People would be going from the Mediterranean area to other parts, even to Damascus, and they would go through this area, and that made it significant. It's like being on a major interstate highway. Now, I don't think there was a Bucky's nearby, but it was an important location in that area, located on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, which also is known as the Sea of Tiberias or the Lake of Gennesaret, even as it is called in Luke. It was important enough that the Romans had a centurion stationed there. This, this official, that was an important official in the Roman scheme of things. And there was also a royal official from Herod Antipas, as we know from John chapter 4, also stationed in that area. So it was an important spot. Archaeologically, in recent centuries, there has been discovered there the foundation of a synagogue under which another foundation for another synagogue has been found that likely dates to the time of Jesus and might even be the very synagogue in which Jesus preached. We don't know for sure, but it may well be. There have also been a number of churches, foundations for churches, in one particular location built on top of the other, and all of them built on top of what originally was the site of a house, and it is believed it may well be Peter's house. Some conjecture there. So now it's important for archaeological reasons. In its own day, it was important for commercial and political reasons. And so that's where Jesus is. Now what about this centurion who has a servant that he cared for? It wasn't just that he regarded him well. The word conveys the notion that he really, if he didn't love the guy, he really liked him. He held him in very dear regard. And so this sickness, whatever it was, impacted the centurion profoundly. We know about these individuals, as it says there in your notes. And by the way, I, I like to change up the outline every once in a while. Sometimes I'll give you, like, study notes, and many of you probably have these already in your study Bibles, but just thought it might be helpful. What did a centurion do? Well, he was in charge of around 100 soldiers. Now, it could have been more than that. It could have been less than that, depending on the circumstances. But uh, that would have been his responsibility. These men, we know from, uh, from history, had to be at least 30 years old. They had to know how to read and write. And they 
got to that position because they were able to produce letters of recommendation, people who thought well of them. And they had to have at least some experience, at least a few years of military service. We also know that the Romans appointed to this rank only men who can command, steady in action and reliable. When hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts, says Polybius, the Roman historian writing contemporaneously. So important, courageous, but also wealthy. They were paid well. And we know he was wealthy because he had built public buildings, a synagogue among them. He was under authority even as he possessed authority. There were several in layers of authority over him, but ultimately, of course, he answered to Caesar. He would have been in this position because he would have been successful in military campaigns or in battle. Why am I telling you all this? Because it tells us about this man's importance which highlights for us all the more his profound humility. And therein lies a lesson all in itself. We see that Jesus is compassionate when he receives the word. The leaders come from the synagogue of the area in which the man lived. And by the way, these were not members of the Sanhedrin. These were, these were leaders in the local synagogue there. They came seeking Jesus because somehow this man had heard word about Jesus. He had heard word about the miracles that he had performed. And based on what information he had, he acted in faith by asking Jesus to come to his house to heal his servant. Now, you know as well as I do that back in the day, any type of what we might consider a minor ailment day could be fatal. I mean, think of appendicitis, for example. My own great-grandmother nearly died from appendicitis in the 19-teens, sometime around 1914, about the same time that George Washington Vanderbilt died as a result of an appendectomy because of infection. There were no antibiotics. So appendicitis was a death sentence pretty much in the day, if I understand correctly. Now it's a minor thing. People say, oh, you know, had my appendix snatched out, just like, you know, you might lose a few hairs. It's just no big deal at all. Of course, as somebody pointed out to me, minor surgery is what somebody else undergoes. <laughs> the simplest of ailments for us were serious indeed. We don't know what the servant was suffering from, but apparently there was no hope for him apart from Jesus coming to that location. But Jesus compassionately goes. I mean, he could have said, who is this centurion to me? Powerful though he may be. And yet, because the request was made, Jesus answered it. And he went. Also demonstrating to us that ultimately the new covenant is going to encompass in the household of God, not just the Jews, but all people. Reminding us, as John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, we see this expansion of the covenant that will extend beyond the descendants of Abraham, the physical offspring of that patriarch, to all people. It's a wonderful bit of good news for us. So having pled with him, having said that he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, saying that perhaps he is what we would call a God-fearer, 
not necessarily a convert to Judaism, in all likelihood not, but still one who respected the one true and living God as we see elsewhere in the Scripture because he had a love for God's people, a man of means who had done for them. And so those requesting help for this man's servant came on the basis of their belief that this centurion was worthy. He had done good things and therefore was worthy of Jesus' attention. Jesus goes because he's compassionate and because he loves. But what we ultimately see is that genuine faith and salvation come not because we are worthy, but because Christ is gracious and compassionate. And so genuine faith is confident trust in Christ and in the authority and power of his word. You can't separate the word of God from God himself. To believe in the word of God is to put our faith in God. To believe in the word of Christ is to put our faith in Christ. As we believe the things that scripture says about him, we believe in him. Psalm 107, 19 to 20. The psalmist says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. It tells us about the power of the word of the Lord. We read in Matthew 8:16 where Jesus cast out evil spirits with a word. And we already read in our call to worship how that by faith we understand that the universe was created by command or literally by the word of God. God spoke and everything came into existence. The word of God is powerful. And so Jesus when he's on the way doesn't even get to the house. And here we begin to see the true character of the centurion who bases his request not on his own worthiness. He, as opposed to the leaders who went to Jesus for him, bases his request entirely upon the Lord Jesus himself. Lord, I'm not worthy that you would even come to my house. That must have been shocking to the people who heard it. Well, the centurion's not worthy. Who is? The centurion in humility said it's not necessary that you come, it's only necessary that you speak the word. There's faith. And Jesus marvels at that. Isn't it interesting that Jesus marvels at something? There's no faith like this even in Israel. And indeed, he doesn't have to go. He speaks the word. When the people get back there, of course they find the servant well. The servant couldn't have done otherwise when the Son of God proclaims something. Just as surely as when he said to the wind and the sea, peace be still. Nothing else could have happened. There's no other possible outcome. Just as surely as when he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was coming out of there. And so this man is healed. J.C. Ryle, writing in the 19th century, says, A greater miracle of healing than this is nowhere recorded in the Gospels. Do you hear me? We might think so. We might think of other things that probably fascinate us more, but listen to what he says, that nowhere recorded in the Gospels is a greater miracle of healing than this. Without even seeing the sufferer, without touch of hand or look of eye, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. He speaks, and the sick man is cured. He commands, and the disease departs. It's extraordinary. And so when you call on the Lord, you never have to doubt his ability. Think of how we doubt the ability of 
people and entities and organizations everywhere, wondering if they're going to be able to fulfill what they say they will do, from the government to a local repairman. Will they follow through? Will they do it? Are they able to? Jesus is able. And not based on our worthiness. It's not a matter of how much we've given or how many buildings we've erected in our name. It's a matter of humbly recognizing the Lord Christ to be who he is. Because he's not a respecter of persons in that way. He blesses those who call on his name in humility and in repentance of sin. Not trying to commend ourselves to him based on what we've done or what our position or stature may be. There's a gospel song to our anonymous parishioner who may be familiar with it. Your statue on earth may measure your worth, but in his eyes, one size fits all. As we come by faith, it's not a matter of our status that would gain God's attention or favor. It's a matter of his grace as he condescends to us and responds to us when we come in humility. And so we see wonderful things in this passage that are helpful for us and encouraging for us, knowing that the Lord Jesus is willing and knowing that he's able and knowing that his word is powerful. Now, I know that oftentimes when we call on the Lord for specific things, we don't get what we ask for. Loved ones pass from us. Diseases go unhealed. Ailments go unremitied. But on the other hand, often there are demonstrations of the power of God. I just got a message this morning from a pastor friend of mine who moved from North Carolina to the upstate of New York near Buffalo, asking us to join with him in giving thanks that a couple just this past week had received word that their newborn child had a genetic defect that would take the child's life in a matter of weeks. They brought the little baby to the church, and in this Baptist church they gathered around and prayed as the couple cried out to the Lord. And when it was over, a phone call came from the doctor's office that said, apparently the scans were wrong, your child is healthy. Now, skeptics will say, that's coincidence, that's just the way things happen. But I can tell you right now, there's a couple in upstate New York who are rejoicing this day with a congregation giving thanks to the Lord who heard their cries. I can't promise you that in your personal circumstance, your ailment, that the Lord will answer in that way. But I can tell you that when you call on the name of the Lord, he hears you. When you cry out to him for salvation and repentance and humility, he hears you. Not because we are able, but because he is able. And we can be assured that he delivers us. Listen, I would rather have to endure the ailments and encumbrances of this life that are a consequence of us living in a sinful world, knowing that I have heaven as my home, than to experience some immediate relief from a circumstance and leave eternity a question mark. Christ has secured for us eternity. He is able to save, and thank God, he saves to the uttermost. Bless his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks for our Savior, whose word is powerful. And we thank you, Father, for the blessings of salvation that are ours in Christ. Lord, please, 
grant to your people today as I know that many are struggling, wondering, living life in the midst of difficulties and illness, loved ones dying, darkness seems to press in on us. Oh, Lord, dispel the darkness. May we see the one who is the light of the world. Lord, open our eyes that we may receive gladly the Lord Jesus. Thanking you, Lord Jesus, that you receive those who come to you in faith. And we praise your name, even as we did in our first hymn. Again, we declare, may Jesus Christ be praised. All this we pray in your name. Amen. And so, in the Presbyterian Church, it has been your privilege, those of you who are members, to consider men for nomination to the office of ruling elder. And you've, you've passed along some nominations. Those have been uh, considered by the session, and uh, men have been approved. Two of those, Mike Novak and Dan Nelson, previously have served on the session and have been ordained elders for some years. Ron Kick, who has served in... Uh, Capacity and leadership in a previous church, now a Presbyterian. I hope he's thankful for that. <laughs> Having also been nominated by you and approved by the session and then subsequently elected by you, comes along with these other two men today. And so I'm going to ask the three of them to please come up here and stand in front of me. And I just want to underscore that what we are doing here today is by act of the elders who collectively together are referred to as the session. It is not uh, I alone who do this. I'm simply a part of that governing body of this church that uh, you have elected. And so, you men, having been uh, nominated, approved, and elected by this congregation to serve in this capacity... I want to ask questions that uh, all of you have already affirmed. Dan and Mike, in previous times when you were ordained and installed, and Ron, as you had been asked before the session and now before this congregation, I'll ask all three of you, either by way of reaffirmation or, for in your case, Ron, as a means of ordination. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given? To be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Do you? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will, on your initiative, make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow. Do you? Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity? Do you? Do you accept the office of ruling elder in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer. Do you? Do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? 
And finally, do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? Do you? And to those of you who are members of Bay Presbyterian Church, and all attending, if you would like, do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive these brothers as ruling elders? And do you promise to yield to them all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which their office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles them? If you are willing to do that, please raise your hand. Thank you. And now I'm going to ask uh, all of our ordained ruling elders or teaching elders to please come up at this time. Ron, I'm going to ask you to take a seat. So let's have you come over here. I'm changing sides because people back there can't see if we go on this side. I learned that once. So what we're going to do at this point, all of you who are elders, gather around Ron because you're going to lay hands on him. As we do that, it's a way of us uh, saying together that he is participating in this ministry with us as those who have been set apart by Christ to this office. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we as your under-shepherds, knowing that the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, has granted to us this privilege of serving, We now lay hands on your servant, Ron, and ask that you might set apart this dear man to be a servant leader in this church. We ask that we are simply demonstrating here on earth what you have ordained in heaven. Lord, that you will bless him and use him, encourage him, and that as you bless him, that he will be a blessing to others. Equip and empower him to do the work that you've given to him that all of us may serve together for the glory of your name. Thankful for our Lord Jesus, who ever lives and intercedes for us. In his name we pray. Amen. And now we extend to you the right hand of fellowship. And I now pronounce and declare... That Ron Kick has been regularly elected, ordained, and now installed. That Mike Novak and Dan Nelson have been regularly elected and installed, ruling elders, in this church, agreeable to the word of God and according to the constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America. And that as such, they are entitled to all encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We still have a little bit to do, but uh, while you're all up here, would somebody make a motion that the session will adjourn at the benediction? Somebody moved. Is there a second? All those in favor, please say aye. Anyone opposed? I like motions to adjourn. They're not debatable. You all may be seated. The two more things I have to do are these. First of all, to charge these who have just been installed and then to charge you as a congregation, and I do that very simply. For those of you who have just been, whether ordained or reinstalled, to say this to you, 
that we are called to live as those who follow the Lord Jesus. To endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in our lives. And to set before this congregation a worthy example. It's only possible by grace. It isn't something that we can strive to by ourselves. You can determine on any January the 1st that you will resolve to do any number of things. But you cannot successfully follow Christ and present an example of him to others apart from his grace. And so I plead with you, live every day conscious of your need of grace, demonstrating a godly humility, willing to admit when you're wrong. The Lord Jesus is the one man who lived on earth who never had to apologize. Now, I know that John Wayne in his movie, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, said, Don't apologize, son. It's a sign of weakness. I love John Wayne movies, but he was dead wrong. Apologizing is a sign of strength because it means you understand that you are a weak vessel in need of the grace of God. So, in your living a godly example before others, one of the ways that you do that is by demonstrating what real repentance looks like. Serve in humility and dependence upon grace every day. Because apart from Him, we can do nothing. Let me say it again. In this way, as He said in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And to the congregation, let me simply say, there will always be hard things that we have to deal with at any given time. We're a church. We're living in a sinful world. We're all imperfect and we're flawed. At times, things are going to go wrong, even in a church like Bay Presbyterian. I know that's hard to believe. But be a congregation that will cause these men to delight in being able to serve. It's not that every day is going to be sweetness and light. But even when they have to deal with hard things, be a congregation who is about living by grace also. Living humbly before the Lord Jesus. Acknowledging your need of him every day. And realizing that while Jesus is sinless, he has granted to you very flawed individuals to serve as leaders. We too are in need of your prayers And we, too, are in need of your love and support. Even when you have to correct us, find a way to do it lovingly, gently. Find a way to do it so that uh, these men may give thanks when they wake up in the morning to be able to say, I get to serve Bay Presbyterian Church. God be praised. Simply some thoughts to leave with you. Let's pray once again. Father in heaven. We thank you, O Lord, for granting to us in the church those who have been gifted and equipped to serve. In this matter of shepherding, we realize again that the Lord Jesus is the chief shepherd. He is the king and head of the church. That position is not left open to any of us anywhere on the face of this earth. That office belongs to Christ alone. And so our Father, whether as elders or whether perhaps attending in this worship service for the first time ever, 
Grant that we all may serve as those who love Jesus. As those who are trusting in Jesus. And those who are living and serving by the power of Jesus, who is the vine. We are the branches. And so we confess and acknowledge his kingship, his lordship over all. And ask your blessing on this congregation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Mr. Clerk, do you know of anything else we need to do in regard to this matter? Then we can move on to the conclusion of the service. And you will find that our closing hymn is, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. Why don't we sing together the first stanza of that hymn? Is that all right with our accompanist and leader? Absolutely. Let's stand together and sing. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen.